house. No, the right no, house. I didn't get We want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. Summer by water. It is a pity, though, that Lily makes herself so conspicuous. I've never seen you look more lovely. You're rather a responsibility in such a scandalous place after midnight. He wouldn't stay with her ten minutes if he knew. Knew? If he had positive proof. I have something you might like to see. I have no idea why you have brought these letters to sell them. A clever woman would know just when to play her cards right. But Lily's never been very clever in that way. You cannot want Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that doesn't even know what snow blowing is. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I'm your host, Chris File, and I'm here as always with my scandalous hussy niece who plays cards for money, Joe Reed. Hello. I love the that you... Scandal. I love that you put hussy in the in that little intro there because literally one of my notes that I wrote down while uh Gillian Anderson and Eric Stoltz are are flirty kind of kissing in this. I just wrote down these ginger hussies because <laughs> I was very very happy for them. Obviously, these two gingers just breathing into each other's mouths. That's literally that's that's the most intimate this movie gets is they are just like breathing in each other's space, which in covid times is very very stressful yeah, to watch. Yeah, she's like give me your covid. Seriously, whatever. And listen, they did not have vaccines for anything back then. People were living back then like it was <laughs> Florida in 2021 in terms of vaccines and um yeah. Mirth. Not a lot of mirth, actually, in this movie. I'm starting to feel like this title is ironic. I kept wanting to scream like Matthew McConaughey, mirth! <laughs> yes, there was some old mirth in this film. There was some young mirth in this film. Intermediate mirth. Because, notedly, I am an intelligent person who understands the meaning of words. I actually had to look up the meaning of mirth. It's just like happiness. Yeah, it's joy. like it's like it's kind of like a low key, you know, not over the top kind of happiness, right? Your mirth. Yeah, like chill, happy. Yeah, yeah. This movie was not that. Had you seen this film before the preparation I had. for this podcast? I saw it in theaters. Oh, it was a very I'm as jealous. you know, um, fun, lively, <laughs> typical teenager. <laughs> I didn't see it in theaters, but I saw it pretty close to when it was first out on DVD. Like I saw it if not in the year 2000 then probably in like 2001, 2002 at the latest. Um and I remember really liking it then and then I started to watch it this time and I started to question myself because the beginning it feels very some of the scenes in the beginning felt very kind of like British TV with the like sort of, you know, uh I don't know, the framing and the fact that there is no score for so much of it. And obviously it's this sort of like, you know, drama of manners and it's not British. But Very chatty. Yes. Um, and I sort of, and then, and Gillian Anderson also 
feels a little stilted in the beginning. And I'm just like, maybe I was just like really enamored with my ability to watch a costume drama back then. And I was, you know, I overrated it. (laughs) And then at some point, it settles into itself. And you realize that like the stiltedness of the beginning is a choice. Mm -hmm. And, and it's so compelling. It really just like moves from like, event to event to event. And her, uh, Lily Bart's sort of circumstances She's in this, like, you know, social quicksand, and it keeps sort of, like, you know, enveloping her the more she tries to struggle out of it. And it's just a really, really compelling story without a lot of uh, sort of grabby frills to it. Mm-hmm. But I think it's... maybe the type of thing that, like, the ty- or at least the type of narrative that, like, we've seen a lot of in these costume dramas. But, like, for a long movie... It really does have like yes. an economy of yes, I agree. speed. It like yep. never kind of lags. The character arc is good. Like that stiltedness you're talking about. It's not like it's on and off for a scene. Like Gillian Anderson has a real control over this character arc in terms yes. of yes. not just her emotional space that she's in, but also like the forwardness of her like performance, I guess yeah. uh, the, the Lily's performance, I mean, in like upper right. society and like when like it slowly kind of chips away rather than is like a switch. And when she gets to the point where keeping decorum doesn't make sense anymore because she's gone past the point where that will help her. And so now she can, she sort of becomes freer as the movie goes along to speak her mind and to sort of lay her cards on the table to employ a metaphor that this movie uses often. I think Lily's, I think Lily's (laughs) inability to, to successfully uh, win at bridge becomes the sort of like metaphor for um, her ability to sort of play the so the high society game. I think Elizabeth McGovern's character says this outright, where she's just like Lily's never been one to know when to play her cards right. And Elizabeth McGovern. Well, by this the way, is why is I called you the movie. scandalous hussy uh, who's playing cards for money. Because let's <laughs> not forget, you do owe me money uh, in the future because I will win the Michelle Williams Amy Adams bet. All right, um, all right, Dan Aykroyd. Bitch, Calm you down. owe me money. Calm down. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, wait, I already owe you the Rosario Dawson money. Is that it? And then I'm like, I'm going to owe What's you the even Rosario more. Dawson money. Didn't we? Oh, no, that was a bet I made with somebody else. Never mind. Didn't we make like a oh, Rosario? I need to hear about this, though. Um, I think I mentioned it before how I had met it, made a, but uh, I, I, but I feel like we had made a bet similar to that before the, uh, the, um, Michelle Williams, Amy Adams bet that was similar to that. We made a uh, Colin Farrell. That's bet, what it was. Which you also owe me money. For That's that. right. So I owe somebody you have else one more year to get an Oscar nomination for Colin Farrell. I owe somebody else money from years ago on a Rosario Dawson bet. I owe you pretty much soon on a Colin Farrell bet, and then I will stand by Amy Adams for the moment. <laughs> Uh, I just, I mostly feel like I don't think Amy Adams is going to win an Oscar in the next couple of years. I just don't think Michelle is either. So I feel like we're going to be, I feel like we're going to be at that one. It's going to be a long standing it um, is. grudge. It is. We're going to be like fucking the whales of August or something like that and just sort of like sitting on porches. <laughs> we'll be the ladies in lavender. Yes, exactly. Well, that's been our destiny for quite a while to be the ladies in Very lavender. Very true. So. Listeners, uh, we're recording this on Joe's birthday. So yes. send him a retroactive happy birthday. Yes. I am now, I'm not going to say how old I am now, but I'm just going to say that much like Lily Bart, I am uh, 
destined to die unmarried and alone in a flop house of uh, a laudanum uh, overdose. So get ready this for that. This is entirely not true because only, you know, we live in a society. I did not just We say live in a society. I love it. <laughs> I was going to say, we live in a time where multiple things can be true. But in this case, multiple things cannot be true because you can't live in that scenario and also have the ladies in lavender scenario. That's true. I die of consumption. I need to choose. Well, and listen, will demand that it's with all the lavender diseases situation. that, uh, that you know, are going to come roaring back now that nobody takes vaccines anymore, consumption is going to be, uh, consumption will be like the 2028 <laughs> pandemic all over again. Anyway. Anyway, we're also recording this on your birthday. Let's just get into this before we really dive into the movie. Yes. We're recording this as probably close to airing as we ever have. Oh, yes. It was a fucking ordeal <laughs> to both of us get this movie. And unfortunately, we this is like one of the few times that we were like, oh, yeah, we'll be able to find that somewhere. Uh, no, you really can't. And so many listeners, when we announced this episode, were like, I wish I could uh -huh. watch this movie. And I'm like, you know what? I do, too. To, a little sorry guys support a your little local peek library. behind sure the curtain library has it yeah a little peek behind the curtain of our process which is chris nine times out of ten will watch the movie before i do even if it's only by like a day or so and so a lot of the times i will just text chris and just be like where is this thing streaming again where did you watch this thing and if it's not streaming on a platform i will you know happily plunk over three dollars to Amazon or iTunes, whatever, and just rent it. Um, but a lot of the time, Chris's response will just be library. And I'll be like, okay, right. Like, Chris is the responsible citizen with a library card and a working relationship with his local library, which benefits him quite a bit because uh, there's a lot of movies that are available there that are not necessarily available anywhere else. And when Chris says, uh, support your local library, it's a, when it's I'm the good trash advice. leaving the library with a stack of DVDs it's good advice. and no books, I'm like, I'm doing research, thank you! It's good <laughs> advice. It's very good advice. Um, I, of course, um, uh, never learned to read and don't have a library card, so I need to find other Joe, means. can you spell the word library for I us? I really cannot. Um, uh, so, But w we've had some things recently where, like, A Thousand Acres was not available to rent anywhere so i had to like hop onto amazon and buy like a six dollar dvd and have it like rush to us so i feel but felt... still in print this dvd that's the is thing. out of print that's the thing is so even that option was not available for the house of mirth the house of mirth if you go on amazon looking for a dvd you'll see something that's like 65 dollars, and i'm like no and so i messaged chris <laughs> and i was just like can we just pick something else and chris who had already watched and outlined the movie by then understandably was just like no we're gonna make this happen And we'd also teased it for the listeners that's true it was already in our teaser we would have had to go back and we don't want to be you know twitter liars so uh chris managed to seek out a double dvd uh, not a, 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 a whatever, two-in-one, where you get two movies for uh, the price of one. 
and it was The House of Mirth, 2000's The House of Mirth, and is it 1998 that, uh, that yes. the, the non-musical Les Miserables was, uh, was the other half of this DVD? So, no promises, but, like, kind of promises we're going to end up probably doing that Les Miserables for, uh, for this head Oscar buzz at some point in the near future. Because it's we are... We know we have access. We are, we are taking all of the meat off of that buffalo. Like, we are absolutely getting our money's worth for that DVD purchase. So, do not fret. We apologize for doing an episode that really is not all that accessible, but support your <laughs> local libraries. And also, hopefully, we can entice you to seek it out because it sounds like we both really liked the movie. Oh, yes. Yes. And and I, and I knew I would because I did before. But um, yes, it definitely holds up. And it's an interesting movie to talk about because we could, you know, it plays into things like the 2000 Best Actress Race, which is a thing we oh, talk a lot about. about. It's our first Terrence Davies, and Chris, I believe you had mentioned on Twitter yesterday that you've done a little Terrence Davies mini marathon, which Yeah, as soon as we rad. planned it, like, I'd already watched The Long Day Closes, which is, like, his, like, if he has one masterpiece, it's that, but, like, he has, all of his movies are good. Uh, hat tip to my friend Charlie Nash for the recommendation of the movie. Um... That movie's incredible. Everyone should watch it. It's on Criterion Channel, and it's like a cool 80 minutes. Um, but yeah, then I was like, you know what? I'm just going to dive into all of Terrence Davies' movies, which, like, not really reasons for us to talk about, because, like, he is more of, like, an auteur that's outside of, like, Oscar's wheelhouse, with the exception of this. And, like, it would be interesting to talk about Deep Blue Sea for Rachel Weiss. She definitely though... came pretty close, I feel like. She was definitely I mean, buzzed for that. if it wasn't for that. for that Golden Globe nomination, I would feel like, no, that's just a critic's thing. No, I feel like she was in the mix for that. I definitely feel like she was in the mix for that. If not, She's incredible like, in it. Incredible. Um, that's the only other Terrence Davies movie that I've ever seen besides The House of Mirth. I haven't seen uh, A Quiet Passion. I didn't see Sunset Song because I had heard uh, not super great things about it. Um... And Sunset Song is just, like, brutal. And, like, I know that there's people that, like, think that's among his best. I don't, like, I don't think he's made a bad movie. Yeah. I haven't seen his docs. Um, it, I just watched the narrative features. But, like, it's one of the more, like, I wouldn't say troublesome. The one that, like, is the legendary, like, you know, set him off of, like, the trajectory he was on is the Neon Bible, which is, like... It's an adaptation of uh, a book written by the same author as Confederacy of Dunces, but mm. he also, like, had abandoned this book, basically, because he wrote it when he was, like, 17. It's... That movie is just, like, not working in what it's trying to do. There's, like, a whole, like, shot, like, long take of Diana Scarwid doing Tura Lura Lura. Oh, golly. It's, yeah, I oh, mean, wow, it's Dennis the Leary's in this movie. Um, cinematic universe. <laughs> um, so, but of, like his his movies are amazing. What's uh, what's Day your Closes favorite? This is the one. What's Long Day Closes? Long Day Closes? What is yeah. what is that one about? That is like kind of a like a lot of his movies are you know at least inspired by his own life. And like that movie, you have this young boy who is very queer coded. Terrence Davies is a gay director. 
And it's just kind of like, it feels cliche to call movies like poetic or whatever, but it Mm -hmm. is like the way it passages from like memory to memory is like this very like poetic cinematic language. And like, there's really impactful use of music and it's shot incredibly well. And it's just kind of like this um, semi-autobiographical, like reflective poem on his life and like his uh, emerging attachment to movies and the cinema. Yeah. Um, and like I said, it's a cool 80 minutes. Yeah, cool 85, it. it looks like it says on uh, on Wikipedia. That's great. All right. So, yes, our first Terrence and Davies. we're talking about The House of Mirth, which is like Longer. the least signature <laughs> Terrence Davies movie to me of the one that like least feels like a Terrence Davies movie. What, okay, so when you say that, what what does that mean? What is it about the House of Mirth that, that diverges from the Terrence Davies thing for our listeners? I mean, benefit? he has, like, a lot of his, like, trademark directorial stamps are these, like, fades from one scene to another that, like, a moment will speak, like... It'll be like a jump in time, but the moments will speak together through something and he'll use it through sound cues. He'll use it through like dissolves and such. And like House of Mirth is just pretty straightforward. And you can say it's because it's an Edith Wharton adaptation, but a lot of his other, he has other works that are adaptations. Right. Sunset Song, Deep Blue Sea is also an adaptation. Yeah. Um, But it's, it's just much like the, I guess... It sound uh, not to sound pretentious, but like the cinematic language of it is just way more straightforward. Yeah, yeah. I think that's that's a good sort of uh, place setting to to leave it with. I want to get into sort of the um, the costume dramas of this particular era of like the nineteen nineties, um, mm-hmm. and especially the sort of the ones that are set in New York, the sort of the, the Edith Wharton, mm-hmm. Henry James stuff. But I feel like we should probably... It's only a few years removed from Age of Innocence, that's, which is yes. Scorsese's adaptation of Edith Wharton. Right. But let's let's hop to that after we do the, the plot description, just because I feel like it's a longer conversation that will sort of spin us further, you know, past where we want to be at this point. Yeah. Okay. So, guys, we're talking about The House of Mirth, uh, written and directed by Terrence Davies, adapted from the novel by Edith Wharton, starring the one and only Gillian Anderson. We will get into it. Uh, Eric Stoltz, Dan Aykroyd, Laura Linney, Anthony LaPaglia, Eleanor Braun, Terry Kinney, Elizabeth McGovern, because, of course, Elizabeth McGovern is in uh, period drama this time and jody may the movie uh world premiered at 2000's toronto international film festival also played new york film festival and then opened limited the week of christmas the year 2000 the year 2000 indeed joseph yes are you on this occasion uh ready to give a 60 second plot description i am let's see there's a lot of plot in this i will say so the chances that i fit it all in without severely truncating some things are uh, are very <laughs> slim but we'll see how it goes well uh you will give a valiant effort joseph your 60 second plot description of the house of mirth starts 
now. All right, Gillian Anderson is Lily Bart, who has some big-ass fabulous hats, but no husband in high society in New York City in 1905. She's not really great at the finding a husband thing, which, spoiler, ends up being her downfall. There's Eric Stoltz, who she's clearly in love with, but doesn't have enough money for uh, her status. There's Anthony Anthony LaPaglia, who is very wealthy, but whose every human interaction feels like a business transaction, and she's turned off. Then there's Dan Aykroyd, who is married to Lily's friend, and who uh, offers to help Lily invest some money in a way that she thinks is very innocent but he ends up uh, trying to coerce her into sleeping with him and she doesn't and so now she owes him $9,000 and between that and her bridge debts she uh, 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 her wealthy aunt who uh, upon whose largesse she is living shuns her and she attains a bad reputation and when the aunt dies she leaves the bulk of her inheritance to Lily's cousin instead meanwhile Laura Linney has made it her mission to destroy Lily and she's fooling around she Laura Linney is fooling around with Eric Stoltz or at least trying to and there's some letters that prove this and then uh, this crone tries to blackmail Lily with it and she buys letters but she won't use them because it'll hurt Eric Stoltz oh god I didn't even get to the laudanum addiction um yeah I even gave you a few more seconds because I got lost as well yeah but that's fine there's that scene where where she sort of is just like hey Anthony LaPaglia like maybe I will marry you and he's like yeah no now you're ruined um and then she gets hooked on laudanum like many people do in these stories actually um you really do root for her and Eric Stoltz in this movie. Mm-hmm. He's never been an actor who I like. I've never disliked him, but he's never been somebody who's like jumped to the forefront. He's an he's an he's one of those actors who because of certain career choices he's not like he's not a punchline, but he's like one of those actors who is sort of shorthand for like middle pack middle of the pack kind of an actor the fact that he was replaced by michael j fox and back to the future sort of he's a little bit of an avatar for you know a career a career that might have been and um but he's quite good in this and he's uh, to play this sort of guy who you kind of long for lily to be able to be with um is a little bit of a tall task for him and he does it well what's that because he felt a little queer coded to me in a way that i was like i don't know how to feel is he queer coded or is he just pale and thin that's my question (laughs) and a dandy you know yeah i mean i don't know so many people i I felt like i i I don't know maybe uh swap roles with him and anthony lapalia or something like i i yeah, because like there's scenes together where they're just like breathing into each other's mouths. The whole like what's what's her line in that movie? Oh, the like oh every time we meet we play this elaborate game. Yes. Just imagine yes. someone in a hat the size of your chair. <laughs> such a hat breathing that into it your. It really mouth. is such a hat. Um, the very first shot of this movie, she's in a train station and she sort sort of emerges from shadow and it's just this silhouette of this woman in a dress with this just like the biggest hat you've ever seen kind of emerging into frame and it's a wonderful shot um the new yorkness of this movie never fails to fascinate me it is there is a very very slim i feel like window of time obviously like English history is there's so much more to English history than it is to United States history. I'm not going to say American history because obviously there have been people in this land for, you know, many, many thousands of years. But American history, specifically as this country, is limited, much more limited than English history. And so there's a much, there's a very, very sort of slim period of time, which is right at this time, this, you know, turn of the century moment. Um, and a little bit before it and a little bit after it, where high society 
kind of limited to New York and maybe Boston, um, resembles high society in England a little bit. And so you get mm-hmm. this sort of sliver of stories where it's like something like this or the age of innocence or the portrait of a lady or um, what was the other Henry James that became a movie? Well, even like the wings of the, does the wings of the dove take place in America or does it take place in England? Because I know that Helen- that I do not know. Because I still have yet to see it. Because it's a Henry James adaptation, so I always, like, and I've definitely seen it, but I saw it a very, very long time ago. Um, And maybe it's both. Maybe there's sort of a transcontinent. But anyway, um, there's this moment where this sort of American period drama both looks and operates very much like things that were happening. Like, like the Jane Austen Mm -hmm. sort of era is almost a full century before this, but it still feels like we're in this era of very strict social codes. And if you go against the social code, um, bad things happen to you. This story feels like it mirrors Anna Karenina also in a lot of ways, in terms Mm -hmm. of like a very, very strict social code that if a woman uh, violates it, there is very little she can do to keep herself from sort of being ruined. And, Anyway, sorry. Go ahead. What? No. Oh, oh it sounded uh, like you were raring up to say something, and I didn't want to get too. No, far I, can, I can. I'll bring it up later because keep going, keep going. So there's this era in the '90s of adaptations of these uh, these novels, and so in 1993, as you mentioned, Scorsese makes The Age of Innocence, which is not the major Oscar player that it was expected to be, but it's still was successful enough that, like, Winona Ryder probably comes within a hair's breadth of winning uh, Best Supporting Actress that year. And Mm -hmm. it's sort of in the mix for things. I think it got not. It must have gotten nominated for costumes, and at the very least. Well, it was seen as a disappointment because it was, uh, like, I feel like people forget this about Age of Innocence because it happened again with Gangs of New York. The movie was delayed by a whole Mm. year. Um. Because wasn't it even the EW Fall Preview the year it didn't open, or was it? No, it was on the Fall Preview for '93. It was, but like, Um, um, but that movie had extensive delays because Scorsese was cutting it down. Um, Right. I mean, you watch it now, and I think it's it's close to one of my favorite Scorsese movies. Right. It should be Michelle Pfeiffer's Oscar. Well, and, it's amazing. And so you get these... So- but it was an Oscar disappointment. Right. And then you get something like, in 1996, Jane Campion does The Portrait of a Lady. And again, there's a way in which that movie was expected to probably do better. Jane Campion, you know, is coming off of, obviously, The Piano, this huge sort of breakthrough success, the second woman ever nominated for Best Director. And so expectations for Jane Campion doing this like very well-regarded period drama are going to be very high. She doesn't get nominated. Neither does Nicole Kidman in a very, you know, buzzy, like Oscar, like Oscar Beatty kind of a role, especially for a woman, an actress who was sort of seen at the time as like very beautiful and a movie star. And now all of a sudden she's acting. She's in a very sort of Tony production. And that doesn't and it's happen. after or the year before to die. It's for. the year after. It's 1996. Yeah. So you could very, very easily, and it's a great performance is the other thing. So you could very, very easily see a world where Nicole Kidman is Oscar nominated for that. She's not. But 
Barbara Hershey is. So it's not fully, completely ignored by the Oscars. It's still sort of in the mix for some things. Barbara Hershey's fantastic in that. Barbara Hershey in that is playing a kind of version of Laura Linney's character in this, in that she's just, she's the nemesis. She is this, you know, incredibly well-cast nemesis in that story. And then The Wings of the Dove in 1997, again, uh, another Henry James adaptation, not a Best Picture nominee, but Helena Bonham Carter gets her first Oscar nomination and Best Actress for that, and I think won some Critics' Prizes for Best Actress that year. And so the 90s is kind of a process like i always feel like we we look at the 90s and it like comes in with like howard's end is very early and that's sort of the it's the big flourish of costume dramas it's merchant ivory's last well that and the remains of the day back to back where merchant ivory's sort of last great sort of show of dominance and by the end of the 90s that kind of a movie is out of fashion in a in in a mainstream way whereas i feel like the house mm-hmm. of mirth is where it has sort of settled to now which is it's an art house movie it can you know get some buzz for an actress like jillian anderson but it's never going to really be a serious it was never house of mirth was never a serious best picture contender ever like even sort of no. um it only really attained the status of oscar buzz for jillian anderson specifically and she ends up getting runner up for Best Actress at both, is it both New York Film Critics Circle and, and National, National Society? Society. Yeah, mm-hmm. which which often happens because those two, I feel like, have an overlap in membership. I think uh, to a, to a great degree, National yeah. Society is much smaller, but a lot of their membership is New York Film Critics people, or at least was back then. Um, she actually, and I believe, I'd have to double check National Society, but I know New York Critics went for Laura, Laura Linney, Linney. Right. For you can which count is interesting it. because it's her co-star Laura Linney is great in this movie, but like this is the big emergence of Laura Linney this year because of You Can Count on Me. Linney also does win National Society, yes. So um yeah, so in both of those it's and and interestingly, I think if House of Mirth had been a bigger deal and Linny doesn't have You Can Count on Me, I think Linny could have definitely been a supporting actress contender for this. She's that good in this. She's that good, yeah. Um, but it's a fantastic year for her. I've said before how for as packed with talent as that 2000 Best Actress year is and for as much as I will never say an unkind word about Julia Roberts winning for Aaron Brockovich, that was right and good and what should have happened – Laura Linney gets my vote that year for You Can Count On Me. It's an astounding performance. And um, and there's also Ellen Burstyn for Requiem that year and Joan Allen for The Contender. It's a phenomenal year. And then the ones who don't get nominated. it's We talked about Renee Zellweger and Nurse Betty um, several months ago when we had Rob Shear on. And we haven't done Dancer in the Dark, but like Bjork gets a Golden Globe nomination and is definitely... We couldn't do Dancer in the Dark. What's that? We couldn't do Dancer in the Dark as right, a nominee. Right, that's right. Um, and But, like, Bjork was definitely in that conversation, too. So, like, it's a really... And Michelle Yeoh for um, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, also that year. Um, a great, great year for lead actress performances in movies. So, uh, the fact that Gillian Anderson couldn't crack that lineup is no sort of slight against her. She was also, I think, coming from... A deficit of, at this time, we still definitely saw TV actresses as a lesser genre 
of actresses, and she was very, very much defined by her role on the X-Files. She wasn't even just a TV actress. She was a genre TV actress. She was in a sci-fi uh-huh. series, right? Like, her struggle... Well, at this point, she'd already had an Emmy yes. for the X-Files, which is... But getting there was a struggle. Like, getting respect mm-hmm. to that level for a show like the X-Files was already a mountain that she had to scale before. And so I feel like this is, like, the next mountain is, you know, now can she be seen as respectable in a in a costume drama that sort of is asking a lot of her and she pulls it off. Yeah. She's incredible in this movie. It Julian Anderson. This is part of the reason why we picked this episode because we keep having these back to back to back to back six timers people and we have to build a quiz for every single fucking episode. Yeah. Julian Anderson doesn't have a lot of movies. No, this is obviously the first Julian Anderson we've talked about. I do really want to do playing by heart at one time. And she's also, Um, is she also in the mighty or am I making that up? She is in the Which mighty. We could also she do. is wild in the mighty. She is like the she is the pedal of the mighty. She is oh no in the shipping not news the, in the pedal. Mighty. <laughs> yes, she is the pedal of the mighty. No, the pedal coil. Oh god, that is a descriptor. She's also in um, obviously not a movie we could do, but the Last King of Scotland. I remember yes. she is. Uh, she's a, but you're right. She does not appear in a ton of movies. She is an actress who has flourished in the medium of television sort of time and again, obviously the X-Files, and theater. but like, um, uh, yes. And theater as well. Uh, but more recently she was, uh, on that, uh, crime procedural, the fall with, uh, uh, Jamie Dornan and, uh, obviously currently reaping awards after awards. She was going to win an Emmy in a few weeks for her performance as Margaret Thatcher on the crown. So I think this current era of Gillian Anderson is so fascinating because it's like she's so much embraced as like one of the greatest performers more than she ever was. And I think it is a level of it is like she's had this long life on TV. She's really become like a theater like legend in some ways like she's playing roles like blanched one such and right. she's doing like the stage adaptation of all about eve but i also feel like there's this level of it too where it's like she's been embraced by the british industry yes. even though she is an american actress to the point that it's like we basically treat her like she is a uk actress well she was in that i want to say it was a pbs adaptation but i could be it could have been just straight up bbc um, of Bleak House, of Charles Dickens's Bleak House in the mid-aughts and got fantastic reviews for that and probably a bunch of award nominations, if not, you know, some, you know, I don't think she won an Emmy, but she might have won something British for it Um, as the lead in that. And it was, that was, again, that was kind of her big role in between The X-Files and what's come most recently. And yeah, I think you're right. I think she's very, very much sort of within that realm of respected period, you know, costume drama actresses, which is really funny because, again, her getting this role in The House of Mirth felt like such a stretch for her based on Mm -hmm. where she had been. I also should shout out if I'm talking about her work on television and I don't want it to go overlooked. She had a supporting run on uh, Hannibal, the NBC 
the television series Hannibal. Oh, yeah. And she fucking ruled on that show. She was so yeah. good. So, uh, um, yeah, I want to throw that in. It's also worth noting that, like, one of the few things that she did actually win, she won the British Independent Film uh, Award yes. for Best Actress, which, like, also feels like a telltale thing because, like, usually those, like, wins are movies that don't translate to, like, even BAFTA nominations. Right. So her other, well, it's interesting. Her other uh, co-nominees in that category were Brenda Blethyn for Saving Grace, which I believe she was Golden Globe the nominated for that. Right, the weed movie. Um, Julie Walters for Billy Elliot, who was a supporting actress nominee at the Oscars. So she's the one who sort of crosses over there emily watson for that movie the illusion defense which i sure don't remember what that was i remember that title chess movie oh it's based on a nabokov novel it might be about chess um i'm not sure but uh actually i'm looking at a little still frame from it and it's john turturro in front of some sort of mock-up of a chessboard so you're not wrong oh, there you go and then the fifth nominee was uh kate ashfield for a movie called the lowdown which uh i don't know sure. of but um stars uh aiden gillen of at the time must have been on queer as folk at that time and is looking very queer as folk in the photos for this movie where it's very frosted tips so um now i'm kind of interested in what the lowdown is anyway um yeah british independent film awards is not something we get to talk about very much but uh uh good for jillian anderson for taking that one also, rest in peace, she won the uh, best lead performance in the Village Voice poll, oh, which is like yeah. usually the they they would pick things kind of like far outside the Oscar wheelhouse. You sure, look sure, at their sure. like director best picture lineup from this year, and it's uh, Claire Denis for Beau Travail <laughs> and Edward Yang's Yee Yee, sure. both masterpieces, but like yeah, nowhere near Oscar. Right, right, right. Um, far more embraced now. Yes. So, this cast is very interesting, Chris. I feel like at first glance, it feels kind of like, and no disrespect to anybody, not really, um, it's kind of a dog's breakfast cast when you sort of look at it, and it's just sort of like, oh, Eric Stoltz, Anthony LaPaglia, and Dan Aykroyd. Like, it just, it doesn't scream high prestige to you. When you see that, and and obviously, you know, Laura Linney's in it, and she rules, and um, it's it's full of really, really fantastic performances, I would say, especially at the margins of it, in, like, sort of these, like, really small roles. You don't see Elizabeth McGovern until a good hour and a half, I feel like, into mm-hmm. this movie, and her presence is so welcome, not only because... She's really great at this. You know, obviously we've seen from Downton Abbey. She like she can do the costume drama thing um, very well. I think I love that, by the way, she's able to be in both of these costume dramas and not have to attempt a British accent, obviously, because this one takes place in America and her character in Downton Abbey uh, is an American. Um, but by the time she enters this movie, Lily has been aggressed by Dan Aykroyd shunned and cut out by her aunt and Laura Linney 
is in the process of like trying to socially dismantle her. And so Elizabeth McGovern shows up and she's kind and she's nice and she's pragmatic and she has good ideas and a refreshing sort of like distrust of Laura Linney and all of this. And it's, she's so welcome when she shows up in this movie. And I end up, I, it's one of those things where it's like, do I think she was great in this movie as a performer or do I just, was I clutching? <laughs> such a am I clutching to, to that character like a life raft? Because like we needed somebody to be nice to Lily at this point, but um, she's really wonderful in this. As is Jodie May, who plays her sort of Lily's jealous cousin. As mm-hmm. is who plays the aunt? Because she's so fucking Eleanor Braun. Eleanor Braun, fucking rule. Eleanor Braun is scary, scary in this movie. What would um, I know her from? That that whole scene where she basically dresses Lily down and casts her out where oh it's just like God. a completely dark frame and just her damn face. Yep. She will kill you. Yeah. She will cut you. It is terrifying. She's probably, aside from Gillian Anderson, uh, my favorite performance in yes. the movie. Yeah. Total one scene wonder. Like, she's in a couple other scenes, but, like, that is the one where she really just, like, she tears a piece off of Lily in that. And it is terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. But I think in general... To your question, though, Eleanor Braun did like movies in the 60s, including uh, she's really fabulous in Women in Love. Nice. Um, I keep meaning to watch Women in Love. I have it. Like, I, I... purchased it and uh that movie fucking rules yeah. you should watch it maybe i'll do that today it's wild man um but like yeah we mentioned laura linney's fantastic in this but like i think anthony lapalia is really great in this i think stoltz is great like i think it's just everybody in this cast is really pulling their weight i think Aykroyd's the only one who sort of stands out because how could he not he's dan Aykroyd and he's in a costume drama and it's just the it adds to the character though it I does think. i think because i think he's you're the right one that like and uh just to be a little uh gossipy and dishy i have a friend who used to work in the like boston club scene uh-huh. who told me like she's like she saw it all dealt with it all of uh creepy people the only people that the only person she ever names by name as being a real asshole douche creep it's Dan Aykroyd. Wow. I mean, it doesn't fully shock me. I feel like all of those Saturday Night Live people from that era were uh, cut from a particularly boorish cloth, I would say, sure. maybe. Sure, Um Especially the men. I don't want to, like, you know, smear Gilda Radner and, and Jane Curtin with the same brush. But um, anyway... The thing about this cast, though, because, like, everybody is so good, but, like, there's something to, like, the brutality and the cruelty of all of these characters and the performances, the way they play them, that it's, like, they are gone from the movie at a certain point. Like, everybody has, like, even Laura Linney, it's just, like, their final note is always something, like, treacherous. Yeah. And, like, it has this real impact that it's, like, the last time Lily sees these people, like, for good, yeah. they are all uniformly, like, awful. So, <laughs> well, this story, and again, I am very, very much not a liter- literary scholar, but I, like, I, you know, took undergrad literary literature classes as much as anybody else did. And I just recall that this, there was a a genre of fiction and... Maybe not all set around this time, but I feel like this story, um, Theodore Dreiser's Sister Carrie, um, Kate Chopin's The Awakening, um, 
Oh shoot, there was one more. That I th- oh, um, oh fuck, why am I gonna um, Madame Bovary? Uh, also, oh yes, these stories about how society at that time sort of chewed these female main characters up and spit them out and in in one way or another and whether it was the strictures of society that was doing it on like a structural level or like in this story where the structures of society are represented by very real people who very very much just sort of take their pound of flesh from her in various ways and i think you're right the fact that these like one-on-one interactions sort of all end at this place where because lily is unmarried and financially dependent on essentially the generosity of others that they can withhold that generosity there's portions of this movie where i did think of like dogville a little bit where i was just like she really is kind of just like bouncing around from like one person to another who hold her sort of security in their hands and can do what they want with it and not everybody is like it's not like Dogville and like everybody in Dogville is the most cruel they could possibly be <laughs> at all times. Whereas in this one, like Anthony Vapalia ends up really genuinely wanting to help her. And he is limited by sort of his own, you know, desire to maintain his own social standing. So he can only go so far as in his offers of help. But he's not unkind to her by the end of the movie. And no. Eric Stoltz also. But there is a limit. There's a line yes. to everyone's generosity. Yes. And it's a hard line. And then you have other people, like her cousin, Grace, who sort of her resentment of Lily for various reasons, one of which being she's also secretly in love with Eric Stoltz, and another one being she's jealous of, you know, her anybody who else who's, you know, subject to her aunt's uh, attention. And she ends up being, you know, very cruel to Lily in her uh, later meeting with her. And obviously Laura Linney is very much like that woman in the Simpsons episode where she's just like, oh, I hope she didn't take my attempts to to destroy her too seriously. And (laughs) she's just fantastic as Bertha Dorset, which by the way, what a name, what a fantastic name. (laughs) Um, And you get that moment where you realize that these letters, I sort of, had to rush past it because I was running out of time in the plot description. There is this sort of, I texted Chris, I was like, this old crone with the letters. Um, (laughs) I was like, enviable side hustle. Yes. I want to have gossip letters that I can sell and make money and support myself. She said she found them. She like in like a restroom or in like a, in a, in a washroom somewhere or something like that, where like they were like discarded letters. Why are you digging through the trash, lady? I don't know, but she meant she found. Is this how you find people's gossip? You just dig through trash hoping to find a letter? The Cindy Adams of her day, bitch. Um, so, uh, finds these letters sort of approaches Lily thinks that it's is it that she thinks that it's Lily who is who was writing them to Eric Stoltz because she saw Lily and and Eric Stoltz together and assumed that yes, they were because she sends them to her to like try to sell it to her so she can save herself but really she has the it, it becomes this weapon that she never ultimately uses right because well Lily has these letters right and so that's the, that's a thing that comes up in a couple of her different conversations both Elizabeth McGovern I think alludes to it 
sideways. I don't think Elizabeth McGovern ever really knows she has the letters, but I think Elizabeth McGovern at some point is just like, you could take advantage of, you know, you know, your advantages with your standing at this point and she's, you're, you're not doing it. You're, you're, you're not very good at playing this game, but Anthony Opalia knows she has these letters and is essentially just like, I don't understand why you're not using these to blackmail Laura Linney into getting you back into society's good graces. And ultimately it's that Lily doesn't want to end up destroying Eric Stoltz's reputation because he's the Mm -hmm. recipient of these letters and this sort of scandalous affair that he and Laura Linney are carrying on would harm him as well. Um, But I think also to Elizabeth McGovern's point, if Lily were savvier about playing the social game, she would probably be able to find a way to threaten Laura Linney and never have the truth of these letters come out. And she's just not good. I think the, the thing you sort of arrive at again and again is she's not good at like, the finding a husband game. She's not good at the social game. She's literally not good at bridge. She is just like, she does not. <laughs> she, the gambling uh, debt is uh, she, like a huge way. She does not play her cards well, literally or figuratively in this world. But I think one of the things the movie does really well, I haven't read the novel, so I don't know how much of a theme this is in the novel, but like it does really present it as kind of this like razor's edge she has to walk mm. of like what is respectable in society how do you play a flirtation game to like best uh you know secure your future through marriage if she even wants to have a marriage or like you know because the flirtation game of it is like it feels like very precarious in terms of how much can she actually pursue something mm. before, you know, being cast out for being uh, disreputable. Right. Well, one of the themes that keeps coming up in this story that the movie, I think, weaponizes very well is this idea that if a woman is merely in a room alone with a man that is enough to destroy her reputation the fact that like dan Mm -hmm. Aykroyd gets her to come back to his home with her unescorted and then she when she finds out that his wife who he has been lying and saying that she's sort of feeling sick upstairs reveals that the wife is not there at all so all of a sudden now Lily is at this the home of a married man alone with him. That alone is enough to absolutely ruin her reputation. She's also, that's what Laura Linney uses against her when they're on the boat in Monte Carlo, where she says, like, you were on this boat last night unaccompanied or, or like uh, unescorted with my husband. So that is enough for me to essentially just like brand you uh, a whore essentially in this society because you are unmarried and you are assumed that you are you know sexually involved with anybody you are alone in a room with and mm-hmm. it's just so incredibly easy to you know to victimize somebody by reputation here and obviously this is a thing that echoes into more modern society and the ways in which you know we can you know believe the worst about women and sort of jump to these conclusions and, you know, use a woman's, uh, you know, sexual availability against her. 
in ways. And it's fascinating. And I think Davies really, really sort of lands home. What a danger that is to just sort of to be so subject to, you know, attacks on your reputation. Well, and I mean, like, I think even, like, describing it kind of sounds, you know, stuffier or, like, right. a boring movie you've seen before. But, like, I'm glad you bring up how well Davies handles the material because I do think this is, even though it's the least like the rest of his movies um, uh, in his entire filmography, it is incredibly well directed and it does have this intensity to it that like after a while becomes like kind of this oppressive movie. Mm -hmm. You can see how like some people wouldn't have responded to it because it is ultimately like a very dark, um, heavy movie. And like some of that is also Gillian Anderson's performance. Like you talked about earlier in the episode, the kind of like performance she has and this like very arch thing while she's still in society. And like, she's slowly mm-hmm. degraded and diminished throughout that. It's like, she has this sobbing monologue to Eric Stoltz towards the end of the movie. And like, it sounds like a very basic like note, but like the way that she sobs at it, the end of the movie is not the way a person like sobs in a movie it's like when you it's like someone truly having uh like a breakdown i was kind of really amazed by that yeah part of it like it's not like crying is great acting but it really felt like i guess i'm not describing it no i think yeah i think it's it's this kind of sort of soul deep devastation that she Mm -hmm. you know is bringing to the forefront and and again, because her character starts off very awkward and very mm-hmm. much like, but like in this sort of like Airs. innocent way. And just like, it's just like, she's just ultimately her greatest sin is she does not maneuver in this world as skillfully as other people do. And mm-hmm. she's a little naive and she's a little, you know, she's not smart about money. Um, what was the thing I texted you last night where she's just like, I'm of no use to this world and I feel very stupid and, and, you know, ultimately I'm going to die alone because of it. And it's just like, yeah, like that's sort of the size of it back then. And it's, and it's devastating. And then you see other people in the movie who she's contrasted with who maneuver very well. Obviously, Laura Linney has like an iron fist grip on her social circle. She, uh, Lily ends up working for this sort of social climbing woman as her social secretary for a very short time. And this woman who's like kind of a nightmare, but like is a force of personality. And we find out later that like, yeah, she was able to maneuver her way into high society and. And, you know, this woman did in seemingly like a month what Lily has been trying to do for her entire life, which is to just sort of successfully maneuver her way about this, you know, high society world that she lives in. And she's Mm -hmm. just not very good at it. And on a performance level, it's this full, like, uh, lowering of the curtain to where it's like none of these people behave like real people and she is kind of stripped of all of that artifice and artificiality of like social interacting with er, interaction of high society that she's kind of this like bare bones shell of a person that like can is like just walking vulnerability um it's interesting to me that 
that she did not get nominated for a BAFTA award, that this movie did not do very well at the BAFTAs, which I know uh, it's best not... British film nominee at BAFTA, too, so it's not like they ignored it, too. Right, and it's a costume design. I mean, the costume this, in this movie, there was a Twitter prompt Stunning. last year. We There was a little moment where we were sort of posting costume nominees from the year 2000 that I remember. And I remember being like, well, obviously Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and these like phenomenal costumes and like almost famous, uh, you know, for that period was like really, really something. But I remember sort of seeking out images from this movie and the costumes are astounding. And some of the stuff that Gillian Anderson is wearing in this movie is just really, really gorgeous without it, without it feeling like, it's a it's not a fashion show movie. You know what I mean? Like it's not like right. um even like Reese Witherspoon's Vanity Fair. Obviously, it's Mira Nair's Vanity Fair, but I always think of it as Reese Witherspoon's Vanity Fair, which we talked about. And that almost felt a little bit more like new scene, new costumes, like hey, what's going on? Whereas like this one, <laughs> it's a little bit more um you know, it's really attuned to the like falseness of those societies, so like the extravagance actually feels important mm. to it in a way that doesn't feel like for lack of a better word costume drama drama uh e yes um yeah where it's like it actually kind of informs these characters it informs like the society of these like you know what is specifically extravagant exactly. about it yeah exactly in a way that feels like real it creates a real world rather than like this fantasy that we're just you know eye candy yeah other Best British Film nominees at BAFTA that year, a film called Last Resort, uh, Sexy Beast, which was not released in the States until 2001, uh, Chicken Run. Oh, boy. Uh, I, I I very much love Ardman. Uh, and the winner, uh, as you might expect, Billy Elliot. Billy! What a great movie. What's wrong with Bali? We, re- we rewatched that one for when we were on the uh, Vanity Fair podcast last year, looking back at the movies of the year 2000. And What's wrong with Bali? I love, I just love that movie. I think it's so wonderful. I really do enjoy <laughs> it. I'm such a Stephen Daldry whore for a while, and uh, that was obviously right in the thick of that era. Um yeah, Terrence Davies also has a movie uh, world premiering at TIFF called Benediction this year. I am rather excited to see it after watching all of his entire filmography this very uh like intense moment of me watching uh his beautiful films house of mirth also world premiered at the toronto international festival international film festival sorry moving right along and moving too quickly but joseph yes i have a game for you i'm very excited we do love a game on this podcast. Yes, we do. Not bridge. <laughs> no. There, this is not a financial bet, so you won't owe me any more money than you already do. Uh, monster. But uh, we haven't played parental advisory in a while. Ooh. Oh, this is very exciting. Parental advisory. So what I have for you, we are going from the films that played the 2000 Toronto International Film Festival. Right. I am going to give you three clues that will get progressively easier. I'm going to uh-huh. remove character names, but otherwise I am taking lifting directly as the way that they are sometimes uh-huh. awkwardly entered in the parental advisory section of IMDb. All right. You will have to guess the movie. You have three clues to get them saying what kind of foul language, violence, sexual content, disturbing scenes are in the movie. All right. 2000. Are you ready? 
Toronto International Film Festival. Okay. Uh, I did not make this movies that I think that you maybe have not seen. Uh, I'm positive you have seen all of these or you at least have familiarity with them. Okay. All right. So your first movie, first clue, non-sexual discussion of lesbian relationships. <laughs> um, do I guess after each clue? Uh, you can if you want. If you don't have something, you can uh, always move it right along. Best in show. Not best in show, though it, I do believe it did play that uh, tiff. Uh, next clue. The protagonist is a gynecologist, and many scenes in the film involve non-sexual nudity in a doctor's office. Dr. T and the women? It is Dr. T and the women. Oh my God. Your third clue would have been the birthing of a baby is seen in full view of the, vag- of the vaginal <laughs> opening during and after birth. I almost said vaginal. 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 Next movie. First clue. A couple has sex, but we only see them kissing while still clothed and their shoulders after a while. Oh, God. That could be anything. Um, What's a 2000 movie that would have done that? Where you see their shoulders after a while. You can count on me. Incorrect. Second clue. A woman jumps off a cliff into a waterfall. Oh, God. A woman jumps off a cliff into a waterfall. Um, I don't know. What's the next one? All right, your third clue. A lot of martial arts, swordplay, and jumping around in the air. Oh, well, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. I love that that's a parental advisory. A lot of jumping around in the air. I don't want my child to see that. I believe that came from the disturbing moments section, whatever they call it. Uh, Next movie. One character almost dies on lewds. Oh, God, not lewds. Um, This is almost famous. It is indeed almost famous. Your next clues would have been a man drinks a cup of LSD infused Uh beer. And it is not seen but strongly implied that a 15-year-old boy is de-virginized by three 20-year-old women at the same time. Yes, I would definitely say it is strongly implied. In fact, stated outright. (laughs) I believe they're dancing around him and saying deflower. So yes, I do believe that is what happens. You might call that an implication. You might call that an implication, yeah. Next movie. A car drives off a bridge into a river and its occupant drowns. Pollock. No. No? That, Good that's guess. absolutely what happens in Pollock. I love that it I happened in another threw movie. I threw that in there because it also happens in uh-huh. Pollock. All right. Next clue. Strong sex scene showing a woman with several guys. Oh. Lucky lady. Um, woman with several guys, year 2000. Um, I don't know. You're going to get it after this okay. one. Jeff Bridges' character smokes. <laughs> is this the contender? It is the That contender. is her big secret, right? She had, like, group sex in college? Yes. Yeah. Well, no. They frame her for it. But in the... Spoiler alert. At the end of the movie, she's like, no, that's not me. I have a birthmark on my ass. Right! Right! It ends up... God, that movie robs itself of the courage of its own convictions by the end. I totally forgot. Joan Allen still rules in that movie, though. I should watch it again. Joan Allen always rules, but she is great in that movie. Yeah. Uh, next movie. Several scenes of a man smoking a joint. 
Well, um, not a joint, honey. Um, what's a like joint forward movie from the year 2000? Um, I don't know. What's the next one? A car crashes into a semi truck. Impact not shown. Screen goes black. Is this Pollock? This is not Pollock. Jesus Christ. <laughs> uh, okay. A couple is shown in a love scene. The scene only lasts a few seconds and is very brief, takes place in a hotel, and we see, kind of from a distance, the woman's bare back as she moves rhythmically on top of a Okay, it's so this you can count on me. This is you can I count forgot on that their parents, very, their parents uh, die in that car crash at the very beginning. Whoever wrote that speaks as I do, with way too many words to describe a simple thing. <laughs> in terms of, we could just say they fucking... Uh, Laura Linney's body double yeah. sits on top of uh, Matthew Broderick's yeah, yeah, body yeah, double. Yeah. Next movie. Yes. A man gets kidnapped at a grocery store, then beaten to a bloody pulp by a group of men. Oh, God. At a grocery store. Well, could happen to anybody. Um, Is this Sexy Beast? No. I'm assuming that if it was uh, uh, available for, for BAFTA, it might have played earlier festivals. Uh, next clue. The car crash is very intense. Oh, come on. I'm not going to guess Pollock again for car crash. I was going to say, this isn't Pollock. I'm not going to do it. You're not going <laughs> to get me to do it. Pollock. Is this before Nightfalls? No. Uh, final clue. The scenes of dogs fighting are intense and may upset animal Amoris Peros. Amores Peros, yes. Uh, See, you should be able to get them by the third one. Uh, Next movie. A boy wears his sister's dress and lipstick. Hey. Um, It's the dream. I know. That's why I would have loved an older sister. Um, Did you know that my biopic played um, the 2000? (laughs) All right. Is, Is this before Nightfalls? It is not before night. Damn it! <laughs> Striking miners throw things and yell at scabs crossing the picket line. Billy! <laughs> What's wrong with Bali? <laughs> uh, the third clue would have been, the film has over 50 uses of fuck alongside the words like shit and dick alongside British swear words like wanker, twat, fanny, and Oh, I gay love stars. it. I love it. Billy's little gay friend. Remember the whole Billy Elliot thing of how they wanted to get it reduced to PG-13, even though they say fuck all the time in that movie? But they're just like, but it's British fuck. It's like, it's but charming. But ch- children say fuck. It's just charming. Yeah. I mean, I would I would fully support that movie being PG-13. I mean, I, just, I remember it as a doctor. We should all be saying fuck. It's fine. <laughs> Next movie. Four people are seen going through intense emotional suffering. Oh, shut up. Um, God, my life, my life story on film. Um, four people, though. That feels like it's uh, uh, specific. What's a, like, four-person intense emotional suffering kind of a thing? I don't know. What's the next one? A man's arm is amputated, but the camera quickly switches uh, when the saw blade comes in contact with the skin. Rec- you can see blood briefly seem out of his arm and splatter on his face. I imagine your third one is like double dong, uh, back to back, ass to ass kind of a thing, right? For Requiem for a Dream? 
It is Requiem for a Dream. The third clue, which comes directly from the parental advisory section, you will never, ever even think about taking drugs after watching this movie. <laughs> I mean, fair. Um, yeah. Yeah. Next movie, your second to last movie. We see a woman snort something not known to the viewer. It is most likely cocaine. <laughs> okay. Lady doing coke in the year 2000. I mean, so many things. State and Maine. No. A character is injected with an overdose of insulin. Oh. I don't like that. That's not fun. I don't know. The first scene of the film depicts a reversed shooting with a stream of blood oozing backwards, blood shown on the walls and floor, and then the shot itself on sc- off screen. I always forget that this is a 2000 festival movie. This has got to be Memento. It is a Memento. Yeah. Your final movie. Yes. First clue. 140 uses of fuck, 14 uses of the C <laughs> slur towards men mostly, one use of ass, twat, prick, wanker, and bollocks. All right, British movie. Um, 2000. Oh, is it uh, Snatch? It is not Snatch. Damn it. I can't imagine Tiff would have played a Guy Ritchie movie. I mean, maybe it's in there. I could. Uh, most of his. It, this is lifted directly, not uh, even taking out a character slur or a character name. Uh, most of his dialogue is either shouting or screaming in order to persuade the main character. Some viewers may find him scary. Is this Sexy Beast? This is Sexy Beast. All right, there we go. Final clue would have been a man has visions, dreams of a hairy man beast <laughs> pointing a gun at him. The creature may frighten some viewers. I remember so very little about the plot of that movie. I just watched it, and that movie is wild. I watched it for this year's uh, yeah. uh, Little Gold Men that we just did for the 2001 Oscar race. Very nice. That is Parental Advisory, but I Joseph... I that game. Yes. Not so fast. Uh-oh. This episode, there's a game <coughs> oh, within shut up. a game. Not a game within a game. I didn't pack my cleavage with the cocktail shaker this time. I don't know what I I'm going to do. I hope you've been paying attention. Oh, God. From the films that you just correctly guessed, which is the most Academy Award-nominated film? All right. Almost Famous got two acting nominations and a writing one, but I don't think anything more. Billy Elliot probably also got at least three. You can count on me. I think just had the two. Requiem, I think maybe only had the one. Sexy Beast, I think only had the one. I cannot remember if Pollock ever actually came up or whether I just kept guessing it. Um, Oh, wait, it's Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is the correct answer. Yeah. What film that you just correctly guessed has the least Academy Award nominations? All right, which one would be a zero? There's got to be one of those that's a zero. Um, Or maybe not. Maybe it's... 
I'm trying to remember which ones I got. All right. Oh, wait. No, Amaris Peros has one. There's got to be something with Maybe a movie we've done an episode on. Oh, it's Dr. T and the Women. Dr. T and the Women, the only film mentioned with no Oscar nominations. Yeah, 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 yeah. How many acting nominations came from the list of 10 films? Okay. Did we do 10? So, one for Sexy Beast, two for Almost Famous, one for Requiem, one for You Can Count On Me, um, oh, what else? Nothing for more. I will say you're forgetting two movies. Oh, two for The Contender. Yes. None for Crouching Tiger. Um... Uh, so now I'm only fit- missing one movie. Oh, one movie. One for Billy Elliot, so eight. Correct. How many acting wins came from these movies? I gotta remember them all again. Um, zero. Zero is correct. There are only five Oscar wins from these ten movies. Can you accurately distribute them? Cameron Crowe for Almost Famous. Correct. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon won cinematography? I'm pulling that up. How many Oscars do you think Crouching Tiger won? Three. No. Two? No. Four. Four, yes. Okay. Those are your five Oscar wins. Okay. All right, so four for Crouching Tiger. Crouching Tiger won cinematography, score, art direction, and foreign language film. Okay. Now known as international. Right. International feature. Right. Joseph, you have won uh, parental (gasps) advisory and the game within a game. Do I win $9,000 from from the Lily Bart blackmail fund? (laughs) (laughs) That was fun. Sponsored by Lily Bart. Lily Bart blackmail. Oh my god! All right, that was very stressful—a very stressful thing to do to me on my birthday of all times. But uh, that was super fun. I figured some extra trivia on your birthday. Yes, listen, you know how much I love trivia. What else do we have for uh, the Mirth House? So I want to talk about the actual. It's, it's good that you brought up Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon because I want to talk about the actual costume design nominees that year mm-hmm. because. It's kind of crazy that this didn't get one. You know what I mean? Like, sure. it's... I'm Crouching Tiger, also a Sony Classics movie. They were pushing that movie really hard, which is maybe part of the reason mm. why this movie fell a little bit by the wayside. That makes a lot of sense. But I want to get For into For a lot it. of indie distributors, you see that sometimes where they, like, rightly put their whole... They gotta make behind. their choices. This is, We talked mm. about this with... Um, what did Neon uh, abandon in favor of uh, Parasite? Uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Right. But you've right. also seen it in other years. Like, um, I mean, there's a bunch of them in the 90s, too. You also have like the year that Moonlight won. Like, A24 fully, rightly put their effort behind it. But like maybe they could have done a little bit more for 20th century women right but again you only have so much money and only so much bandwidth and also like crouching tiger not only did they get four oscars for that movie 
they like it made a hundred million of dollars. Money. Yeah, like, like they're the, yeah. Sony Classics made absolutely all the right calls that year. Like no uh-huh. one's uh, yeah. We're not gonna just like those other examples we did. Exactly. It was absolutely the right call. Yeah. So costume design that year was won by Janty Yates for Gladiator, uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragons. Timmy Yip was nominated. Uh, those costumes rule. Uh, 102 Dalmatians uh, nominated for uh, costume designer Anthony Powell, which cool. Cool, but again, like, it's it's 102 Dalmatians. Like, have we not already, like, The costumes exhausted? at 102 Dalmatians are even better than 101 Dalmatians, by one, It's some wild By shit. one Dalmatian. Um, <laughs> How the Grinch Stole Christmas, Ron Howard's How the Grinch Stole Christmas, is nominated for costume designer Rita Ryak. And, like, I both get it and also resent it. <laughs> Like, I get it, right? You're doing some, like, interesting things, like Christine Baranski and, and whatever. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot. Yeah, yes. Um, ultimately, I wish something else had gotten there. And then Jacqueline West was nominated for Quills, which, like, yes. But I think if you're going to do period costumes, I would very, very, very much slot in something like the House of Mirth over Quills. And I know that Quills was nominated elsewhere. Famous. So, like, it makes a lot of sense. Or what? Or what did you say? Almost Famous. Or Almost Famous. Or, like... I know that like contemporary costumes and getting Oscar voters to recognize that contemporary costumes are very much a thing. And Julia Roberts did not show up on the set of Aaron Brockovich Absolutely. with those like push up tops. But like that is a costume design nominee. Right I'm there. also contractually obligated for nominated in makeup. Uh, Aiko Ishioka's uh, uh, costume design for, for the, cell. the cell. The cell 1 million percent should have been a costume design nominee. Like, without question. That movie exists. Weird Gays Who Love the that. Cell unite around. It's uh, been a minute since Aiko we've Ishioka's mentioned. Costumes. It's been a minute since we've mentioned the costumes for the cell, but like 1 million percent. So, like, I think that category, and again, I get the gladiator thing. It is a, you know, it's a sweeper that year. So, like, whatever. I would probably wipe out probably everything in this category that isn't crouching tiger hidden dragon for other things um but like there i there like oh brother where art thou had some really interesting costumes that year um what other movies i'm trying to like look through the like i could get behind a dancer in the dark costume design nomination honestly like there's some stuff there that year um all of the cardigans of Chocolat. I was going to say Chocolat, kind of. Like, that's not, like, that's not... That is cardigan cinema. Yeah. But, yeah, Justice for Aaron Brockovich's costumes, which is, like, that's contemporary costumes done very, very right. Like, half of the conversation Absolutely. about that movie was about... Remember that quote that she gave to Oprah about how it takes a village to raise this cleavage? Like, it's a great <laughs> quote. It's a really, really great quote from Julia Roberts. God, she did so well that year on the campaign trail. Um, what else about we could talk uh, about the we've kind of danced around it, but uh, the this best actress line up a little bit like you definitely are more firmly planted in Laura Linney, where I've uh, previously said my vote would change constantly. Um, Just rewatch Alice doesn't live here anymore. That is like, yeah, I feel like I've decided that uh, that is my favorite overdue Oscar win. What? Because that's an overdue Oscar for Ellen Burstyn. For Last Last Picture Show and The Exorcist. 
Yes, because I absolutely would give it to her for The Exorcist. But, yeah. like, part of the reason why she won was, like, she was, like, one of those overdue narratives. Yes. And I think same time next year was our... It was... I think Alice was her fifth nomination. But Alice really... Like, Alice stands on her, her, its own really well. Absolutely. As a film. Absolutely. Like, I'm so glad she won for it. Yeah. But, like... Yes. But yes, it, the, the, it, the other it's factors. It's my favorite overdue in. Oscar win. Yes, um, I think that's right, and I think the fact that she had already won an Oscar made it easier for me to just to allow her to just sort of sit with the nomination for Requiem because she's she's phenomenal in that movie. Like I, I take nothing away. Again, I think all people five people who of the say women, they would vote for her are not wrong. No, they're not wrong. Nor are the people who say they would vote for Julia Roberts. Nor are the people who say they would vote for Joan Allen. And I know that, like, that's a smaller contingent, but like, and there are no people who would say they would vote for Juliette Binoche. And I, and but also Juliette Binoche is, and she had already won by that point too. So like that was fine. But like Juliette Binoche, who is such a skillful actress, mm-hmm. and is such a and is a foreign uh, actress. Um, her appeal in the United States is always going to be a little uh, exotic, for lack of a better term, or that, you know, it's going to be very, very much sort of pushed by critics, which I think is why it's fascinating that this French actress is able to ride into a nomination on a movie that was not a critic's darling, that was very much movie star driven like she gives Mm -hmm. a movie star performance in that film and i the more time passes the more why i while i would have liked to have seen any number of other actresses take that nomination yeah i could probably throw a dozen names at you before i would put juliette binoche in there but i'm kind of charmed by the fact that she got it yeah um, and like she would still go on to do even better work, probably her best work that like Oscar yes. was never going to go for, and things like Let the Sunshine In or Certified Copy or Clouds um, of Sils Maria, even. Yep. Um, and Certified Copy is the one I would give her an Oscar for. That's that's my that's that's me. Um, but I think also back on the Joan Allen tip for a second though, if we had known that this was going to be her last Oscar nomination. I still wouldn't take it away from Julia because I feel like that's like the universe is lining up correctly. Mm-hmm. And like at that moment, like it would have felt wrong to not, to not do it. But like, I, it's sad that like, that was the end of the end of the line for Joan Allen in terms of as an Oscar nominated. Momentarily forgetting what her third one was. It's this, the crucible and what Nixon, Nixon. it was Nixon and the crucible back to back. So the contender really felt like, a momentum nomination where it's just like she's finally coming into her lead performance. And it's I remember the best performance of her nomination. There was too. a sense that like the best was yet to come for Joan Allen. There, mm-hmm. there was this sense that like this won't be her last nomination. She's going to keep getting these roles and she's going to keep getting nominated. And the fact that it dried up and the fact that like a movie like The Upside of Anger and a performance in that was like completely ignored. We really have to do The Upside of Anger. Um uh, but the fa- and then and then just the roles really dried up for her so quickly. That window shut so quickly is really mm-hmm. kind of a chilling reminder of like how brief that window can be for even the best of actresses in you know in this climate. And it sucks. It super yeah. sucks. Anyway, anyway, that's a headspace for me to be in on my birthday. But whatever. I love you, Joan Allen. <laughs> We love Joan Allen. We also love uh, Gillian Anderson. Yes. Who, like, even though, like, 
I don't watch The Crown. I obviously live in the States and can't go to see her in the British theater that she is, like, highly, highly praised for. Yeah. But, like, it has been genuinely exciting to watch her get so thoroughly re-embraced within the past decade. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I'll be interested to see what this year's Emmys end up being in terms of what kind of a ceremony we get. Obviously, the Delta variant is uh, probably making a lot of people question whether they're going to want to be at an in-person you know ceremony and yet it also feels like the entertainment industry feels very unwilling to go back to zoom ceremonies after the oscars Mm -hmm. so whether she's in a room and shows up to collect this award that she's absolutely one million percent going to win or whether it's another it'll be her third (laughs) remote acceptance of a trophy for this role um I love it for her. Remember her snake? Was it a snake that was on her dress for... Was it the globes? Oh, I can't remember. It was so fucking cool. That's the other thing about Gillian Anderson. She's like, rad as hell. Oh, yeah. She seems like... Like, she's a kook, kind of. But, like, in a way that feels very fun. I feel yeah. like there's... I don't sense the sense of malice in her in her cookery uh, in a way that I maybe do with some other people, but she's she seems very fun, and it seems like that cast of the Crown seems to really enjoy each other in a way yes. that I find very charming. Olivia, especially this version of the cast with Olivia Coleman and Emma Corrin and Gillian Anderson and Josh O'Connor, like they all seem to be a cool hang. You know what I the mean? The year of Olivia Coleman being happy, yes. not only for her fellow cast members, but her fellow nominees has yes. been lovely. What Olivia a wonderful Col- lady. Olivia Coleman, how unexpected, I think, a little bit, that Olivia Coleman would be as good at the award show thing as she is. We I love could it. Uh, see her being an Oscar nominee again this year. What is she in? The Whispers going around Maggie Gyllenhaal's oh, right. Elena Ferrante novel. Uh, adaptation the lost right, daughter right are all so exciting <laughs> it's netflix right yes netflix come on netflix actually win something don't just get eight billion nominations let's actually win something this they time get acting oscars you who has defended laura dern's win against the that's Horde true i shouldn't wanting. i shouldn't overlook it that's i and i and i do defend it it is a great win by a, for a great performance um that's right. I was mostly thinking in lead acting categories, but yes, you're right. You're right. Have they not got a lead acting Oscar yet? I don't think so. I don't think they have. It's just screenplay and supporting wins. Right. Obviously no best picture. Right. I think their best picture play this year is, I mean, maybe we'll like the movie, but I think unfortunately it's going to be the Adam McKay movie. Oh, I don't know. The tone of that trailer did not feel like it was going for awards to me. Would the tone of that trailer be that far off from the tone of Vice? I think they would at least be like Academy Award winner, such and such, Academy Award winner, such and such. Like, I think they would like at least be touting the bona fides of its amazingly starry cast. I think they are really, really selling it as what it is, which is just like a kind of broad comedy with these, you know, night of a thousand stars uh, cast uh, behind it but we'll see we'll see i suppose i'm just maybe skeptical that however broad of a comedy it is that it won't be if not 
entirely embraced by the Academy, it will be Netflix's uh, first priority. Well, they don't seem to have... It doesn't feel like they're as flush this year with big contenders as they have been previously, but where the next two months tend to tell the tale in terms of what are the contenders right, right. and what are not. So we'll see. We'll find out when we do our uh, our annual TIFF episode. We'll, uh, yeah, we'll guys, way. we'll uh, be doing virtual TIFF. Hopefully we'll actually be uh, given access to certain movies. Don't expect us to uh, have any thoughts on Dune. Yeah, they're not going uh, to scream Dune on our laptops. Yeah. Yeah. And they shouldn't, I should say. I'm not, I'm not being... Uh, I'm not being unduly bitchy. Everything Denis Villeneuve says. I mean, we says, know we're not going to see Dune, but I like, I would like to have some inkling of what other movies are not going to be accessible. I agree. I agree. But anyway, we'll get into that uh, for that episode in a few weeks. Yes. All right. Any closing thoughts? Um. Uh. From the legendary House of Mirth, Gillian Anderson. <laughs> Yes, I can't believe that was the first legendary House of Mirth joke we had uh, going into this. But what uh, would be the House of Mirth's rival house? Oh God, the House of the Flying house Daggers. Of Delight. <laughs> house of Delight is it? No, it would have to be like the House of like the International House of Pancakes. The uh, the House of Morose, like something oh. like that's like darker and sort of like not fully s- the house of melancholy like, right not because like mirth isn't full happiness right it's just light happiness the house of melancholy and it's darcy from the smashing pumpkins uh <laughs> running that house it's kirsten dunst from melancholy i well, thought it's like full out i thought of that the other day did i express this thought to you where it's just like i know the names of every single member of the smashing pumpkins and meanwhile like i could not tell you more than three songs of any popular artist right now like it's truly <laughs> my my literacy in the music uh realm is just you can name three beyonce songs I no i know no i'm exaggerating but like it's it's the degree to which I used to be plugged into certain things and and now just like very, very much not is, uh, is, is something you're plugged into enough. Also speaking of Kirsten Dunst and Netflix, we should also mention the Jane Campion movie. Heck yeah. Heck yeah. That's going to be at New York film festival, which I am fingers crossed, uh, uh, hopefully going to be accredited for if anybody listening to this loves our podcast and has any sway over who gets accredited for New York film festival, please let me in. Yeah. I am I'm begging at the door. All right. Anyway. So that we can see the Jane Campion, which we can also hopefully see at Toronto, and uh maybe it'll be Kirsten Dunst's first Oscar nomination. I mean, I feel like like Charlie Brown with the football with Kirsten Dunst and Oscar nominations. I'm just like it's at some point I'm gonna I'm gonna like just let it happen unexpectedly. I don't know. I don't know. So uh do you wanna move on to the IMDB game? Let's do it. All right, would you like to explain the IMDb game to listeners, new and old? Yeah, you guys, every week we end our episodes with the IMDb game. It's a thing where we challenge each other with the name of an actor or actress and try to guess the top four titles that IMDb says they are most known for, in that little section that says known for. If any of those titles are television, voice-only performances, or non-acting credits, we will uh, tell that per- tell uh, each other up front, just to be fair, after two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles release years as a clue. And if that's not enough, it just becomes a free-for-all of hints. Fantastic. Yeah. That's the IMDb game. Sure Would is. you like to give or guess first? I'll give first. All right, cool. 
whomst do you have for me? So we talked about Terrence Davies earlier. You mentioned that uh, perhaps the outlier or the um, sort of celebrated, if not disaster, but uh, uh, head-scratcher, I guess, among them is the Neon Bible, which stars, among others, the great Jenna Rollins. Ah. We've never done Jenna Rollins for an IMDb game. Jenna Rollins. So I give you Jenna Rollins. I feel like the likelihood of her known for pissing me off (laughs) is high. Uh However, Uh she was Oscar nominated for A Woman Under the Influence. So I'm going to guess that that is there. Correct. A woman under the influence. A woman Thank God. under the influence. I would have absolutely I know. shit a brick. I know. I know. Um, one of the greatest screen performances of all time, period. Um, okay, The Notebook. The Notebook. Very good. Well guessed. <sighs> this is where I'm like, how much Cassavetes will show up. And I'm going to say I'm just going to be mad and that there is no other Cassavetes. Do you think Cassavetes is the rival house to Cassa Zeta Jones? (laughs) Do you think that's how it works? What would they sell? What would be in... Valium? I don't know. Cigarettes. (laughs) Cigarettes. (laughs) Just cartons of cigarettes. Ashtrays. Yeah. Um... Ibuprofen. Yeah. Uh, fucking love Cassavetes. I need to finish the uh, Cassavetes movies I haven't seen. Yeah. Um, okay. What is that movie that we have dabbled in doing that she was SAG nominated for? Unhook the Stars. Unhook the Stars, which we should definitely do at some point. It is not correct. Uh, that's not the correct answer. But uh, yes, Unhook okay. the Stars. Strike one. Wait, 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 no, no, there is another Cassavetes on here uh, where she is the titular role. It's got to be Gloria. It is not, in fact, Gloria. Strike two. Fuck. The Cassa did not not serve you well there. All right, so your two remaining answers are from the years 1998 and 2005. 98 and 2005. Is 98... Playing by Heart? I thought that was 99. Nine, uh, playing by Heart is 98, but it is not Playing by Heart. Uh, it's Hope Floats. It is, in fact, her performance as Sandra Bullock's mother in Hope Floats, where she says to Sandra Bullock, um, shake the stink off you. <laughs> Which is a great line. Okay, so the 05 movie is... After the notebook. Yes. So she's playing some type of old lady. Yes. Huh. This is a film I saw in a theater. Do you think I saw it in a theater? It's very possible. What's revelatory about seeing it in a theater? No. Like, would I not expect you to have seen it in a theater? No, no, I'm just sort of relaying that uh, experience that I saw it in a theater. It is, in fact, the only one of these four movies that I saw in a theater. Oh. Okay. 
It co-stars an Oscar-nominated actress from a film we have discussed in this episode. Not The House of Mirth, I'm guessing. No. A film we've talked about this episode, so it's, I'm guessing, a 2000 Oscar nominee. Yes. Was that actress nominated in 2000? Do you want me to say? Yes. I'm yes. Try, I'm trying yes. To, okay. Yes. I didn't know Julie whether you Roberts. were you were working this out aloud or whether you want you were asking <laughs> questions. Oh no no no, Joan Allen. Joan, I would believe Joan Allen. It is not Joan Allen. Not Joan Allen. Joan uh, Allen. She's in the Notebook with, but we've already corrected. Oh that yeah, duh. Well, see, I was right somewhere. <laughs> um, not O five Julia Roberts. Ellen Burstyn. No. Okay. Not 05 Laura Linney. Maybe it's supporting. Um, Francis McDormand? Not Francis. Kate Hudson? Perhaps. Kate Hudson in 05. Is it like Raising Helen? No, not Raising Helen. The fact that you that haven't gotten it by now tells me you did not probably see this movie in the theater. Or perhaps oh, never. I, I'm trying to go through. Uh, it's not Alex and Emma. Is it Skeleton Key? It is the Skeleton Key. Have you seen this I remember this movie? that movie being bad and fun. It is both of those things at the same time. It is both bad and fun. And Jenna Rollins is seemingly having a very good time in this movie, I will say. Good for her. You get paid. She is a uh, a creepy old lady villain, and it I is... I forgot she's the villain, and I can't place her in the movie, but I, it tracks that she's in it. Oh, you should watch The Skeleton Key. I will watch Women in Love. You will watch The Skeleton Key. We'll both come back and report <laughs> <Okay>. to each other. <laughs> I have to watch the movie that we're recording tomorrow. Yes! Um, God, me too. That's I'm right, I gotta do that today. I'm pissed about it, too. <laughs> anyway, anyway, uh, before we talk more about that and spoil the episode, um, I have someone for you who, shockingly, we have not done. Uh-huh. Uh potentially uh me going easy on you potentially uh this could also be very very difficult. Um Gillian Anderson was a runner up for the New York Film Critics Circle in best actress. I've chosen for you the uh best actor winner in that year. Mr. Thomas Hanks. Oh, we've never done Tom Hanks. Father of Chet, husband to Rita. How dare you that the very first descriptor you gave for Tom Hanks is father of Chet. <laughs> How dare. America's dad. I'm going to be as uh, offended by that as any time anybody describes an actress by who her husband is. I'm he is famously be... the father to Chet. <sighs> among many things. How dare you bypass one of our finest living actors? His performance in that thing you do uh, before uh, you mentioned Chet. All right, um, all right, Tommy Hanks. Tom Hanks. Well, I'm gonna say Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump. I'm gonna say 
I mean, here's the challenge of Tom Hanks, and we've said this with uh, some other IMDb game choices. He's in so many things, and he's so remembered for so many things that trying to find the four is challenging. But he's also conceivable you could get a perfect score. That's the other thing, is I don't want to... If I get this by getting the years, I'll feel like a failure. I feel like I need to try and... like The goal here is to get it before I get the hints. All right. He's also a busy guy, so it's like maybe the years wouldn't. It might get you there faster, but maybe it wouldn't because right. like he's had a lot of right. like busy years where he does a bunch of movies. Right, right. But like it, eventually, you know, yeah, sure. Okay, Saving Private Ryan. No. Okay. <sighs> One more before I get the hints. All right, Philadelphia. No. Damn it! <laughs> I'm so sorry. We are moving on to the years. Your years are 1988, 1995, oh, of course. and 2000. Of course, of course, of course. I almost guessed Castaway before I guessed uh, uh, Saving Private Ryan, and I should have. Castaway. Castaway. Correct. He's actually on his known for it. He's there for a producing credit. Yeah. That's the other thing. Castaway, which, as you mentioned when we did the uh, Little Goldman last year for 2000, we did it this year for 2001. Go back and listen. Uh, Castaway, not as good of a movie as I remembered, but Tom Hanks even better than I remembered. I was the one who really, really loved Castaway as a movie. I thought once we got past a little that shaky sort of opening stuff, um, I think the stuff on the island is so good that it completely makes me forget about everything else in the movie. I think it's a great movie. Should have been nominated for more than it was. It should have been. He's amazing. Nineteen ninety or sorry, nineteen eighty-eight. He wishes he were big, and he's big. And he's, a movie that says, "What if you were big." says, what if you were a child and wanted to have big boy sex with Elizabeth Perkins? And you do. That woman, I mean, it's a, it's a hacky joke by this point, but like that woman genuinely is going to be in therapy for the rest of her life. And, uh, <laughs> and also his mother is traumatized. Traumatized. Genuinely Mercedes just rule. like... Mercedes Rule is so that. great in that movie. Well, that was... Mercedes Rule only nominated when she won and should definitely have other Oscar nominations. Do you think she was splitting her own vote that year? Because she also got a bunch of attention for Married to the Mob that same year. And I wonder if... Possibly. But I don't think she was even campaigned for Big. I don't think so. And I would be willing to bet that it was more she just didn't get nominated for Married to the Mob. God, you also, talk about a makeup Oscar. Like it's she's great in the Fisher King, but like she doesn't win for the Fisher King if she doesn't if she doesn't have a like she should have you know, she she had a lot of momentum leading up to that, I will say. Those the years leading I up mean, to that. Lost in Yonkers is a forgotten movie. Uh-huh. And I'm pretty sure she has a Tony for it. That's anyway, a so big, big, fine. big part of it. Yep. But yep. like she should she's fucking amazing. That scene on the phone in Big is a crusher. It's an absolute crusher, and it makes that movie. For as much as that movie is about a fantasy and is about the you know the keyboard tap dance and Hanks being amazing, I think Big is a little bit less remembered if you don't have the sort of the the salt with the sweet, which is that phone conversation, which is just devastating. It's absolutely devastating. Anyway. Uh, 1995. One of our finest, Mercedes Rule. Yeah. 1995 is Apollo 13. It is Apollo 13. 
a movie that I keep intending to go back and watch again, but I just haven't found the time. I have seen it many times because it is my spouse's favorite movie. Oh, that's adorable. Is it your favorite, Ron Howard? I mean, feels like it's many Ron people's. Howard? Feels like it's many people's favorite, Ron Howard. I do think it's a good movie. Yeah, like I'll stick up for that movie. Yeah. I mean, the closest thing to like a gay Ron Howard movie is Splash. And I haven't seen Splash in a while, so I don't know if I could really fully defend it. There's got to be some queerness in Willow. Maybe. I don't know. Joanne Wally Kilmer is pretty, like, yes queen in that. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I think that's our episode. I think that's our episode. You guys, if you want more of this head Oscar buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at this thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Joseph, uh, tell the lovely listeners where they can find more of you and wish you a belated happy birthday. Oh, you don't have to do that. But you can find me on Twitter if you want to at uh, Joe Reed, Reed spelled R-E-I-D. I also need to get back on the horse with uh, Letterboxd. I've been... Uh, Delta variant has kept me away from too many movies in the past few weeks, and that's a bummer. So anyway, Letterboxd, Joe Reed, Reed spelled R-E-I-D. I am also on Twitter and Letterboxd at Chris V. File. That is F-E-I-L. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mavius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate, like, and review us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever else you get your podcasts. Five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility, even though they suck. So mm-hmm. write us a nice review and about how every time you listen, we play these elaborate games. We really do. Um, that's all for this week, but we hope you'll be back next week for more buzz. Bye. Bye.